the fall, a promised redeemer was guaranteed by God. He gave a series of covenants, a series of promises to Abraham, to David, to the nation as a new covenant to say a Messiah will come and redeem all mankind. So this combined Luke and Acts assures Theophilus that the persecution he's facing is not a sign of judgment. Instead, this persecution is predicted. Every time you take up your cross and follow Christ, there will be a cost. This is the way the message would flow through the New Testament church through the book of Acts. Whenever there was persecution, there was a great explosion of faith. As we read through Acts, we'll see certain milestones where the church is persecuted. And you think, it's going to die. It's going to retreat. But the the Spirit is poured out and the church explodes. See, the message of the gospel would spread to all peoples, both Jew and Gentile alike. And that's what we'll discover as we go through this wonderful book together. There'll be some other things that we hope to discover. And one of the primary things I think that we'll see is the book of Acts is entirely about the plan of Almighty God to work out salvation through the history from that point on. You read through the book, and I encourage you, I know it's a long book, but I encourage you, each day, grab hold of the book of Acts and start reading the story. It's wonderful. One third, you know, one third of the the book of Acts is sermons and dialogue. Peter and Paul and Stephen proclaiming who Jesus is. So I encourage you, grab the book, read through it. You might might be brave enough to read through it in one sitting. It'll only take you a couple of hours. But get familiar with what's going on as the birth of the church explodes. And I, I guarantee you'll see, underpinning the narrative, is God and his mighty work through his spirit exploding to all nations. Another of the themes that we'll come across is Jesus as Messiah and Lord of all. For the gospel is sent to all. We'll read shortly in Acts 1.8 where it says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Yes, that means Kilsyth, South Australia or in Invercargill, New Zealand. You can't get further away from Jerusalem than Invercargill, New Zealand. 
But the gospel spread to Invercargill, New Zealand. I have some dear friends in church down there who worship in the same way as we worship. Who uphold God's word and proclaim Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And that's a message you'll get as we go through the Acts of the Apostles. We'll also see strong themes around the Holy Spirit's work, the third person of the Trinity. You'll see in his giving and his coming and his empowering and his indwelling, you'll see this new life that we live as Christians is empowered solely by God's Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We'll learn a lot as we work through the pages of how God indwells and empowers and clothes believers to proclaim him, to proclaim Jesus. You'll also see as we run through this book of Acts, you'll see the mission of the church, you'll see the mission of the apostles as they go from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the ends of the earth. The inclusion of Gentiles and the opposition that's faced every time the gospel is proclaimed. You'll see the triumph of the gospel because lives are changed. One of the key figures is Paul, a hater and a persecutor of the church. We'll read this account about Stephen being stoned. And you see Paul looking on, approving of that stoning. And within one or two chapters, you see the remarkable transformation and the gospel triumphing over that man's soul. And in the balance of the book, from chapter 13 onwards, is just all about Paul and his journey as the gospel spreads to the uttermost parts of the earth. God is mighty. His power is awesome. As he works his plan of salvation through these 11. We'll also see themes of witness and mission. We'll see themes of signs and wonders and apostolic authority. And there'll also be themes of End times, eschatology we call that. The things that will happen in the future relating to the kingdom, relating to God's plan for this world. So I encourage you, read the book. Hold on for the ride because it is a fast-moving, fast-paced narrative of the explosion of the church. And it's encouraging. Because all these themes we face today, all these themes are relevant for the here and now. So that's the purpose. That's why we're going to look at Acts. And this morning we're going to start But we're not going to start in Acts, we're going to start in Genesis. No, we're going to start in Luke. 
We're going to look at the back end of Luke chapter 24 as we introduce the first 11 verses of Acts. So if you'd like to turn with me to Luke chapter 24, and we'll read the the text together, we'll read from verse 36 onwards. I'm reading from the English Standard Version today, if you're sliding or a digital copy of the Bible, that's the, the translation I will use this morning. Let's read together. Let's stand while we read. Stand up. Let's uh, stand as we read these verses. Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, and these are the disciples, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. You may be seated. This is the third account in Luke chapter 24 of a, a resurrection account. The first one was at the tomb where the woman went to find where Jesus was. But they could not find him. The angels proclaimed to him, he is not here, he is risen. They went back and told the apostles and disciples and only Peter, he ran. He wanted to find out what was going on. And then Luke Luke gives us an account about two traveling on the road to Emmaus and they were discussing what had happened in Jerusalem during this Passover time. And Jesus came near to them and said, you know, what are you talking about? Quite ironic, really, isn't it? Jesus knew what they were talking about, but he came near them and said, what are you talking about? Explain to me the things that are going on. And they, almost in exasperation, said to Jesus, don't you know what's going on for the last few days in Jerusalem? We thought he was the Messiah, but he's dead. 
And then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. See, what was concealed, Luke runs this trace of concealment right through this gospel. If you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 1, straight after Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Luke tells us that Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one. Luke 9, 21. Luke 9.44, he says, But they did not understand the saying that the Son of Man must be delivered up to the hands of men. And it was concealed from them. Luke 18 has exactly the same term. Jesus starts saying, Look, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. This is what the Messiah is about. It's not about a political kingdom on here, on earth at this point in time. Sin has to be atoned for. God's wrath has to be satisfied. Repentance and forgiveness must be sought through the precious blood of the Messiah. This is what Scripture has predicted. And yet Luke 18 tells us that they understood none of these things. The apostles understood none of these things. Why? The saying was hidden from them. Luke 18, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And now we have a change. The crucifixion has occurred. The death of Jesus has occurred. The resurrection has occurred. What was hidden or what was concealed is now revealed. What was concealed is now revealed. Jesus opens the eyes of the two on the road to Emmaus. And now he appears amongst his disciples, as we have just read. Now, their response is not unusual. How would you do if you had your master, your Lord, and you had not seen him? You'd heard maybe he had resurrected. You heard a couple of distant testimonies. You heard from the guys on the road to Emmaus. You heard from the woman who went to the tomb, but you physically had not seen them. And Jesus appears amongst them. He stands there. And the first thing that comes out is, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Their response is not unusual. Their response is they were startled and frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost. Thought they'd seen a spirit. How can this be? How can... Jesus be risen. And Jesus says to them, you know, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Those are two questions Jesus asked them. Why are you troubled about this? Why are you troubled about seeing me? 
So that's the physical side of things. Why are you troubled about what you see? But then he drills straight to the heart. But more concerning is why are there doubts in your heart? Why do you doubt this? Why are doubts in your heart? And then to deal with the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, Luke gives us this insight. He says to the disciples, touch me. See that it's me, see that I'm flesh and blood, and feed me. If I was Jesus, I probably would have asked for steak and mushrooms and, and uh, fine delicacies, not broiled fish. But Jesus got broiled fish, and it's not actually the meal that matters, it's actually the fact that he physically ate to prove that his resurrection body was not some ghost, was not some spirit, It was a physical resurrection of Jesus. And that gives you and I great hope, does it not? Jesus rose from the dead. We too will rise from the dead. So it raises two really important things here. These men who walked with Jesus served with Jesus, saw the miracles that Jesus did, even did their own miracles when they were sent out. They still doubted. In their hearts, doubt was taking the place of hope and promise. I think that's the same for you and I. I know it is for myself at times. I doubt at times God's word and the promises that are there. I get consumed with the worries of life. I get consumed with matters around about me that create anxiousness and create all sorts of turmoil. Like the disciples, I doubt the promises of Jesus. Like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Like, I will send a helper to you to comfort you, to convict you of sin, to develop fruit of the Spirit in your life. Doubts like, is he really going to come back? where the word of God clearly tells us yes. We become consumed with our own situation, consumed with our own worries. And yet what we should do, do is to be consumed with Jesus and his promises. Ask the Lord in a fresh way to reveal himself to you. To increase your faith. To live by faith through the power of his spirit. So your doubts 
are no longer. Folks, that's what the Spirit of God does in our hearts and our lives. That's the security and assurance that we have based on the fact that Jesus has died for our sin. And God remembers that no more. He sees us through the precious blood of Christ. And Christ's righteousness, Christ's goodness, Christ's perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God covers all our sin. He clothes us with his righteousness, as Romans tells us. He then reveals himself to the 11. And he does a little bit of an Old Testament survey here. He takes the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures is known as the, the law of the prophets and the Psalms or the writings. And Jesus opens their minds to all Scripture for them to understand all Scripture that relates to what? That relates to the fact that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's three infinitives in there. The first one is, firstly, that Christ would suffer. Fact, suffer. The Old Testament scriptures tell us that. He raises the bar in the mind and the hearts of the apostles. He says, look at Isaiah 53. This is what it means. Look at Psalm 22. This is what it means. This here does not say that every part of the Old Testament scripture proclaims who Christ is. It's specific. It talks about the fact that the understanding relates to the fact that Christ should suffer and rise on the third day. And that this very message, this gospel message, should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus for repentance and forgiveness of sin. That's the only way man can be saved. Is a proclamation of the measures that Christ died for your sin. He suffered and he has risen. Why? For repentance and forgiveness of sin. That's the gospel in a nutshell. As we look through the book of Acts, that's what Acts is about. It's about proclaiming that message. And it starts in Jerusalem. And then Jesus gives these guys a charge. You ought to be witness of these things. We'll talk about that in a sec. And then I'm, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's move over to Acts chapter 1. Read the first 11 verses here. And just be a brief commentary on these 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering uh, by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will he at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In a lot of ways, it's a a repeat of what's happened in Luke chapter 24. But there are some significant things to be noted here. Some significant things. Firstly, note that Jesus communed with them for around 40 days after the resurrection. See, in the Jewish Passover, or in the Jewish festival cycle, you had four significant feasts going on at this time. The first one was Passover, which we now celebrate as Christ's crucifixion, Good Friday. The very next day, the the Jewish festival cycle would go into a a, a week-long celebration of unleavened bread. And this would commemorate commemorate uh, Israel's departure from Egypt because that's what was commanded. You know, as you flee Egypt, you had to have bread without yeast so, uh, for seven days. And, and then they were to have a holy assembly after the seven days. So if you like, you had Good Friday, Passover. Easter Saturday, you started celebrating unleavened bread, which ran through to the next Saturday, the next Sabbath. Celebrating redemption from the land. And another festival would start on the Sunday. And it was the festival of first fruits. So it was the Sunday following the first Sabbath after Passover. And it was the offering of new grain to celebrate the beginning of the grain harvest. And it was really a commemoration of Israel entering into the promised land. We celebrate that for different reasons. It was the Sunday after Passover's resurrection. The ultimate first fruits. Where death has been conquered and Christ reigns. And then following that, Sort of 50 days after Passover was the uh, harvest of weeks or Pentecost. We will learn about that next week. It was the first harvest at the end of the grain harvest. It also was a pilgrimage festival. So all these festivals, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, 
and Pentecost, if you were Orthodox, you were required to be in Jerusalem at that time. There's no mistake, God had his Messiah crucified at Passover. It's no mistake that the known world of that time had come to gather into Jerusalem for these festivals. It's no mistake that when the Spirit descended upon the apostles and they spoke into multiple language groups, that people heard the gospel in their own language because they were already gathered for these festivals. God was mighty in his plan. So this is a historical background of this, and here we have Jesus talking to his, his apostles, and he's showing many proofs that he is alive, eating, drinking, fellowshipping with them. And Luke gives us an insight into what they were talking about. They were talking about the kingdom of God, verse 3. They were interacting on, okay, Lord, are you bringing your kingdom here now, or when is it going to be? I don't know the questions. The text doesn't tell us. But I would think that a majority of the questions align to David's promise, the Davidic covenant running in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where there is promised a restoration of the nation under the headship of Christ. So I imagine there was a lot of toing and froing and talking about this at that time. And Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem. Stick there to the Pentecost feast. Stick there to the first harvest feast, feast of weeks. And wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. Luke doesn't actually talk a lot about it. We talked about it in Luke 24, 49. Back in Luke 3, 16, he talks about it. John predominantly is the one who talks about what the Holy Spirit will do. And if you, quick references there, you go to John 14. John 14 says, um, verse 16, Jesus petitioning his Father, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither receives him or knows me. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Isn't that wonderful? And in verse six, uh, chapter 16, John tells us more roles about the Holy Spirit. He will be a helper. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will glorify Christ. John 16. So that's what Jesus is referring to here in Acts 1. This empowering of the Spirit is going to occur. Wait in Jerusalem, for it won't occur many days from now. You know, the coming of the Spirit throughout this Luke and Acts narrative is described in terms of being clothed in the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, the Spirit coming upon people, and filling. 
I believe all these are complementary metaphors used interchangeably for the same thing, for the same experience. That when you come to faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit indwells us. Completely different to Old Testament saints. In Old Testament saints, the things of power, the Spirit dwelt upon them for that season. Think of Gideon. Think of some of the judges. Think of David. Even Saul. But the promise here is that the Spirit indwells us. And is our comforter and our helper. And then after 40 days of instruction about the kingdom, the apostles, disciples asked a really pertinent question. So Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time fulfill the Davidic promise? And he turns to them and says, hey, you're not to know that. That's under the Father's authority. And uh, what you are to concentrate on is being my witnesses. The kingdom will come, but you concentrate on being my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. Because I will come again, and the angels testify to that. The same way you saw him ascending, he will descend on the clouds. He will come again. Now the answer that Jesus gives here is um, you're not to know the times and periods that the Father has set by his own authority but you are to witness to the fact and the power of the gospel message. Jesus refused to address the timing of the kingdom, but he offered no correction here. The question was a good question. There's no correction to the idea that there would be a national restoration of the people of Israel, and Romans 9 to 11 talks about that as well. But what he does, in his answer, he challenges the hope of the immediate restoration of Israel. But he does not challenge the hope of such a restoration itself. God has his plan, God has his covenants that need to be fulfilled. So this is the charge to the 11 apostles, you are to be my witnesses. It's pretty easy to draw an application there, isn't it? If you placed your faith and trust in Christ, if you have the indwelling spirit within you, the charge for us is to be Christ's witnesses. And the basis of our witness is the death burial, and resurrection 
for the repentance and forgiveness of sin in Christ's name. If you want to understand what being a witness is about, understand the simplicity of that gospel message. I encourage you this week to look at the back end of Luke 24. Look at the simplicity of that message. That's what we are to witness to. We are to witness to the fact that that message has liberated us. Has freed us from our sin to worship the almighty God. Does that not excite you? I hope it does because as you walk around this world, you've got people all around you going to hell who have not heard that message. We are to be witnesses. I want to um, just share a story with you that's happened this week. I'm sorry for going over time, but I need to probably say sorry to Farina more than anybody else for Christ, but um, we, probably, we won't have an ending song. We'll just finish here. Uh, we had a friend and acquaintance uh, we got to know when we were in the States. Uh, we served at a church called Southwest Bible Church, and we used to do outdoor uh, evangelism services. And we came across a fellow by the name of Monty Williams. Now, Monty Williams will mean nothing to m- most of you. He was a NBA basketball star, uh, won a NBA championship with the San Antonio Spurs, and at the time we got to meet him, he was a uh, coach of the Portland Trails Blazers, which was our local NBA team. Monty had an amazing transformation. He came to know Christ in the middle of his career. And when we knew him, he just completed a really simple uh, devotional guide for sports people to introduce him to the power of the gospel and the power of Christ. He was using his ability that God had given him through athletic ability and coaching ability to proclaim Christ to those around about him. Monty's in his early 40s, mid-40s, with five wonderful children. We got this message on Monday that his wife got killed in a car accident on Monday, head-on, and three of his kids were critically injured. I want to read something that Monty wrote from his eulogy at his wife's funeral on Friday. This is what he wrote. And that this is the heart of being a witness. Let's not lose sight of the important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God is love. And when we walk away from this place today, let's celebrate because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. We didn't lose my wife. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. I'm going to miss her. But let's not lose sight of what is important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. This is just a wonderful reminder that God 
relentlessly turns our tragedies of suffering into the triumphs of his glory. My charge to you today, folks, is let's be witnesses of Christ as we are going wherever we go. Proclaim him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your great love, your great message of salvation through our precious Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you he died, he rose. And Father, help us to proclaim him. Help us not to be doubters. Help us to be enraptured with your grace, love and mercy. Give us a heart's desire to share the love of Christ. Help us to be compelled by the love of Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for your spirit that indwells us, enables us to be witnesses for Christ. Pray these things now in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen. Let's just spend some time uh, fellowshipping together.